everyone, and welcome to GradCast, the official radio show and podcast of the Society of Graduate Students at Western University. I'm your host, Emily Hutchinson. And I'm your co-host, Laura Munoz. And we are here with Bryn Duffy. Thank you so much for being here, Bryn. Hi, thank you so much for having me. Can you tell us what lab you're in and what you study very generally? Yeah, so I am in the Staples Lab in biology at Western, and we study hibernating 13 million ground squirrels looking at mitochondrial metabolism. Excellent. And uh, just uh, for us to give us a background, what uh, is hibernation? How does it work? And why is it important to study in squirrels? Yeah, so um, when we think of hibernation, I guess you could kind of categorize it as something that mainly mammals do. It is a way to metabolically suppress and save energy. So um, in the hibernators we study and in most hibernators, they are experiencing challenging winter conditions and to in, to avoid that energetic stress of staying active and eating when there's no resources, they will actually actively suppress their metabolisms and reduce to up to 95% of euthermic values into something that we call hibernation, which is made up of like a few states where they um, they conserve their energy until the springtime. That's fascinating because sometimes you wonder like how do animals survive out there? Like they're, they don't have a house or if, if they do, they don't have heating. What kind of animals hibernate? Can, do all of them do it? Is it, is it just, just ground squirrels? Yeah, so our ground squirrels definitely do hibernate. Uh, they're great hibernators. They have, speaking of little houses, they have uh, cute little burrows that they can kind of delve in. Most of them are below frost line, so they're avoiding freezing. However, the Arctic ground squirrel, just to kind of go off topic, they actually can um, be in burrows that are below freezing, so it gets really darn cold for them, and their body temperature rests at like minus two. But um, to kind of go back to your question, um, hibernation is kept mainly in mammals. Um, you can say there's a certain bird called uh, the common poor whale that also hibernates, but um, I might I might fight you on it, but th that's just me. Um, not just me, that's a little dumb. Anyway, um, so hibernation is found across all three orders of mammals. So that makes us think that it's a ancestral trait and all hibernators or all mammals at one point had the ability to hibernate. Uh, which are the three orders of mammals? The three groups of mammals that all hibernate include the monotrema, the marsupialia, and the placentalia. So that's like, we know marsupials, we know the placental having one, so, so like the same group that we're part of as humans, as well as um, the monotrema. So are all mammals potentially able to hibernate? Because I'm imagining, for example, like tropical squirrels. They don't need to hibernate, but in case if I bring a tropical squirrel to the north, will they be able to hibernate here? Well, that's a very interesting question. And maybe not a tropical squirrel, but there are these fat-tailed lemurs, and they do something very similar to hibernation, where their metabolism cycles in the same way that we would expect in a hibernator, but it occurs in really dry and hot conditions. So that will be called estivation, but they are very similar processes. That's really cool. Yeah, because I guess it's it's like a cold challenge here, but it gets really hot in some other places. 
Uh, just going back to something you said earlier, you said that the Arctic ground squirrels maintain a body temperature of below freezing, like negative two degrees Celsius. How do they do that? How, how come their body doesn't just freeze solid? Yeah, so like that's a great question. And I think the easy answer or the short answer is we don't really know how it all works. Um, I know that there used to be some old studies looking at like antifreeze proteins in the ground squirrels, but I don't think much was really found. But I think um, I'm sure that with all the work that's going on, the answers will come one day soon. Good. So like once you start hibernating, uh, you need to make sure that your cell doesn't die, right? How do they ensure that those cells can actually stay alive or like come back to life after being frozen? Yeah. So the phrasing of that question is really interesting because I guess something that I should explain is that during hibernation, animals cycle between two states and that's not true of all hibernators. So um, some animals that don't cycle between uh, these two states called torpor and interbout euthermia include bears because they're so big um, that their body temperature doesn't get as low and they kind of their metabolism just fluctuates a little bit higher. And a second species that I just has slipped my mind. But um, during these hibernation periods, they are in torpor where their metabolism and their body temperature and their heart rate and the respiration is all really, really low. And then they will spontaneously, for reasons we aren't quite sure or how, will arouse to the state of interbout euthermia, where their blood flow will increase back to the same as in the summer, as well as their body temperature and their metabolism. And some of the theories as to why they do that is actually to ward off infection. So maybe your immune system isn't able to work as well at such a low temperature. So ground squirrels arouse and are able to fight off any kind of infection and then but they go back into the torpor because it's a very energetically costly process to be able to hibernate. But when they are hibernating, um, they are very still, they don't need to eat, they don't, um, they don't need to drink any water and they're not producing any kind of excrement. They're just sitting in their burrows and they stay that way throughout the entire winter. Incredible. How do you think that they don't eat for so long? Like, do they just, they don't store like a little pile of food or anything like that? How do they manage that for months? Yeah. So instead of hashing food, like, you know, our tree squirrels do where they take their little like uh, seeds and nuts and like stash them away somewhere in a tree, ground squirrels, they do store energy stores, but it's in the form of white adipose tissue. So they can be up to 70% white fat before going into hibernation. And I have some great scans that I'd show you, but they get built, like they're massive and they're able to work through those energy stores and burn off those um, polyunsaturated fatty acids throughout the winter. That's, that's like fascinating, uh, but uh, now I'm wondering, you said that uh, you, uh, your research specifies on the mitochondria, right? Mm -hmm. And how the mitochondria works under such conditions. Can you uh, talk to us a little bit about that? Yeah, and that's a great question because when we're talking about um, suppression of metabolic rate in, um, in ground squirrels, for example, we think that it comes down to kind of three things. So you're gonna have those passive thermal effects. So as the body is colder, your enzymes are slowing down and that Q10 is like, you know, it allows for things to kind of slow. So those are kind of the passive things. 
But then you also have other components, including kind of switching your thermal regulation. So the squirrels, they don't shiver as much. And so they reduce that so that it would only happen if it was a lot colder. So that's called their thermal neutral zone um, is moved. But to kind of just go right into the mitochondria, the third thing that ground squirrels do in suppressing metabolism is what we know as active, um, um, active suppression. So we know that these changes ha are happening before any changes in body temperature do. So it's a controlled suppression. And we don't know exactly what the switch is that causes suppression, but we know that it needs to happen really quickly. And we know that it has to kind of act um, throughout the entire body. And um, what we do know is that mitochondria suppress their respiration and their production of heat during uh, hibernation. So one of the theories and one of the things that we've studied and shown in our lab is that mitochondria have these things called post-translational modifications, which are just basically like this phosphate group that binds to certain complexes in like the mitochondria electron transport system, which actually help to regulate their activity. So we see patterns and changes that uh, correlate with the suppression of metabolism. So what makes a hibernator's mitochondria different from a non-hibernator's? Because humans have mitochondria, but we are not able to hibernate. Is there anything, do they know a specific change or something they have that's special? Well, that's like a very challenging question, but I can at least speak to mitochondria in some tissues and tissues that ground squirrels have more of than us adult humans do. So one example is brown adipose tissue. So this is a tissue that helps with that thermal regulation. So it has um, something called um, coupling protein one, so UCP1 um, in the brown adipose tissue mitochondria. And we have a great student in our lab who has been working really hard on this tissue. Um, but basically they allow for proton uncoupling in the mitochondria, which generates heat. And it's something that is different than what we had just because we don't have as much brown adipose tissue. So you mentioned before that uh, the common ancestors for all mammals were able to hibernate. <laughs> so I'm wondering if uh, those uh, complexes that you're mentioning, have, have we lost them through time or are they there, but they're not being produced, for example? Yeah, so um, we also have the same complexes in our electron transport systems. Um, so I don't know what the mechanism is that has been lost over time. And what we do know is that um, over evolutionary time, like all orders have had it at some point. So it's, it suggests that it's ancestral, but um, what has been lost or what has changed is, is really hard to know. We don't know. Can you tell us a little bit more about why hibernation is not like sleep? Because you were talking about how mitochondria are suppressed and the body temperature is lower and everything. And so I know some people often say like, oh, I need to hibernate all winter. I'm so tired. But what's the difference between torpor and sleep? Yeah. So I guess the big similarity between torpor and sleep is that you are uh, reducing your energy expenditure and you're saving energy in both cases. However, in torpor, um, your metabolism is so suppressed and your body is downregulated to the point where brain activity is, is lessened much more than you would see in sleep. 
So that's one of those other theories about an arousal from torpor to IBEs that they're actually waking up so they, they can sleep because brain activity is so low during torpor that they're not able to get that kind of restful REM slow wave sleep that, that we need. So after they're out of hibernation, they're super tired? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, they might be. They're animals, right? So they are hungry. They've lost all their fat and they are ready to get eating and then right on to reproduction as soon as they are ready to. So what we see actually is um, the males will come out of hibernation a little bit before the females and they'll eat up so that they are ready so that when the females are up and they are energetically ready, they can then reproduce. And then the males will just, they've done their job and they go back to sleep. They will, they will enter hibernation a lot earlier than the females will. Are there any consequences of hibernation? Like do the squirrels suffer because of it? Like if they're, if they're so fat at the beginning and so skinny in the middle, is, is that the only thing that happens to them? Do they have brain damage? Do they have problems with, with their muscles? Like what, what happens to them when they're so still for so long? Yeah. So um, I guess what helps with that is these arousals as well. So we don't, we don't see the, the muscle atrophy after an arousal. They're, they're, um, aside from their huge fat loss, they're, they're pretty okay. Like we have ground squirrels that we keep in captivity and we see that they are, they're still um, healthy when they come out of their hibernation season. They're just ready to, you know, switch to a diet that's high in like protein and fat to, to start bulking up again. I'm wondering if hibernation is something that uh, these squirrels do because they have to, or is they like i'm sorry i'm always making this kind of comparisons but if they you place them in a place without winter will they hibernate anyways or is is it activated by weather and like external yeah. conditions well like i think that's a really great question and the answer is it depends so there's actually kind of two facets or or groups of hibernators we have um, what are called facultative obligate, uh, facultative hibernators. So they will only hibernate in conditions of like cold temperatures and low food resources. And so things like, for example, like the Eastern chipmunk, the kind of chipmunks that we see around here, you see them through the winter and they're active, but if it's really, really cold, you're not going to see them anymore. And they've, they've gone into hibernation. Like that's kind of triggered their, their metabolic suppression. But other animals that are obligate hibernators seem to have this endogenous circadian rhythm so that even if they are kept at the same, the same light schedule and the same temperature all year round, and this includes our 13 line ground squirrels, they will still go into hibernation. And while they might not go down all the way to like four degrees as their body temperature, they'll match whatever the ambient temperature is because they're just they're just not controlling or thermoregulating anymore. Um, they have to do it. And um, we're not really sure why. We just know that there are obligate and there are facultative hibernators. Yeah, I guess the following question will be like, why? Uh, is there any advantage of being obligated, hibernated? What was that, was that one a more ancestral character, like being obligated or they become obligated because they were, they had like smaller life Spence or something like that? Yeah, that's a great question. And I'm not 100% sure on the answer, but what I can speculate is when we look at what mammals hibernate and what animals and mammals do what we call kind of daily torpor, which is 
closer to kind of a facultative thing where they'll they'll suppress metabolism when they need to, usually at night when it's cold. We see that um, it's more conserved and um, consistent in, in those obligate hibernators than it is in the facultative. So I think you're right. Like it makes more evolutionary sense to me to only hibernate when you need to because you're, it's, um, you know, it's very, uh, you're susceptible to predation and other things can go wrong. And it's, it's like a very, uh, it's a very difficult thing to do. But on the other hand, if you're an obligate hibernator that you don't really have a choice to do that, maybe that's helpful because um, you can't really predict when you're going to need to and you have to, you're preparing your body for hibernation anyway. And that's that saving of energy still like, it, it increases their fitness overall. Can you tell us a little bit more about like evading predation and that kind of thing? So how, like how susceptible are they? Like if something dug into the burrow and found the squirrel, how quickly could they come out of torpor and run away? Oh gosh. Okay. Well, not that quick, unfortunately. So they are real cold, right? And they are real shut down. So um, I guess this may not be as scientific as an answer as you want, but when we hold torpid brown squirrels, um, they look like they're yawning at you and they look very cute and they stretch their little arms, but like they want to, they want to kill you. They want to defend themselves and get away. You're a scary, scary predator, but that's, that's the best they can do because they are so slow down. Their physiology is just not running at a euthermic rate. So um, it can take them hours to, to fully warm up and to be active. It's probably too late for them if a predator gets them by then. So they go into hibernation, let, let's say for like two, two or three months or how long does it last? Yeah, so they'll, they'll uh, our ground squirrels will be going into hibernation around now actually. So by Halloween, they should all be really getting comfortable and they will hibernate and cycle between torpor and IBE until uh, around April. So that, that's, that's quite a long time. And we see that their um, durations of torpor bouts where they're not arousing are longest in like the thick of the winter. So the middle of it. And at the beginning it's shorter and they do these things called test drops where they try to hibernate and they're just getting their bodies ready. And then they extend longer and longer and longer and then shorter and shorter until they, they wake up for the last time in the summer. How do you think they know when it's the last time to wake up? If they're underground and sometimes April is very cold. So is this also like an endogenously regulated thing? They just know when to wake up or if it's like a really warm spring, do they wake up earlier or is there data to show that? Yeah, I'm not, that's like a really cool question that I haven't thought a lot about. Um, I would lean more towards some kind of endogenous thing. So we do think that there's like a signal and maybe the signal is, for metabolic suppression or the flip side of that is like an arousal is getting like, maybe the signals for suppression are getting weaker and weaker. So they're sh shortening their torpor belts more and more. And then it, it kind of um, stops being produced completely. And then they wake up. It could be something like that. Yeah, but um, at least in the obligates that we know of, um, it, it seems to be endogenous. It doesn't seem like if we were to like make it really bright in there that they would stay awake for longer. I, I am wondering if you're if this if they have these very specific dates for starting hibernating and ending the hibernation, 
won't they be like really affected by changes in the climate? Because I guess if they wake up in April and April still very cold, how are they going to deal with the fact that there are no as many resources as they will expect to be? Yeah. I think that's a great question. I think that kind of comes back down to, you know, natural selection. So the squirrels that endogenous rhythm is getting them to wake up that little bit earlier, they're not surviving and they're not passing on their genes. But the ones that have their timing really well figured out are going to survive and they're going to be able to pass on their genes to the next generation. And do you know the percentage of squirrels that die during hibernation? You know, they can die. And I think that's something else that's, is that age is definitely a factor as well. So as a squirrel gets older, because in, in the wild, um, I think that the average lifespan is between like six is around six years, but in captivity, we had one squirrel, we named her mama. I know we're not supposed to, but she's very special to us. And she lived from like 2017 till this year. So she was doing a great job. And um, I think um, that's something that does happen that as they get older, they kind of go into hibernation earlier, at least from what we've seen. And like, sometimes they, they will just not be able to survive all of those arousals. Switch track a little bit here. Do you think that we'll ever figure out what that signal is? And then a second question is, how like will we be able to use that? Do you think that we'd be able to make humans hibernate? Yeah, so like, great question. I have a theory because of my research. So I'm looking into um, reactive oxygen species production in our ground squirrels. So that's just like, um, like a reactive oxygen, right? So it's something that's gained an extra electron and likely occurs when there's these big fluctuations in oxygen. So during one of these arousals, we think that there's more ROS being produced in the squirrels. And I'm thinking maybe an arousal is triggered by changes in kinases that affect the phosphorylation of these complexes that could be kind of accumulating during torpor and then changes um, in, into IBE. But, um, Sorry, what was the rest of the question? <laughs> the rest of the question was, do you think that humans will be able to hibernate? <laughs> yeah. So, okay. Do I think humans will be able to hibernate? Probably not like ground squirrels can hibernate just because we are so darn big, but maybe, maybe we'll be able to hibernate like bears can one day. Maybe we'll be able to find and unlock that hidden thing that allows us to suppress metabolism. But again, we talked about this already. Hibernation isn't the same as sleep. So I don't know what the application or use would be unless we're all going to Mars or something, but like unlikely, I don't know. Elon Musk, let me know. Um, but it would, be, it would be beneficial if we could kind of do something to be able to help suppress metabolism for like organ transplant or something where we need to preserve tissues for, uh, for, for prolonged periods of time, especially with low oxygen availability. Yeah, uh, my, my question was kind of related to that because I was wondering, so why are you so interested in on hibernation? Is this like because you really like squirrels or is there anything else? It's just like, this is a very uh, like uh, interesting topic I can see, right? Like, but I don't know if that's just for basic science or do you think that, that it has a lot of applications? Yeah, so that's a really great question. And as cute as the squirrels are, I wouldn't say that I'm doing my research to, to be near them. Um, what I'm really interested in is just like the, the physiological phenomena of hibernation. So just like 
the core science and trying to understand like how and and like what is happening for for these cellular processes to to continue and for for mitochondria to be able to survive this and like what are they doing like i want to just learn how does this work so that's kind of where i am i think application um based experiments are really interesting and very cool but I think at least for our hibernation research, they're, they're really far away from, from where we are right now. We're just gathering that pursuit of knowledge-based learning of metabolic suppression. That's awesome. And Bryn, you're in your PhD now, but where could you see yourself going after this? Do you want to keep studying other hibernators or look at other amazing animals? Where, what do you see yourself going next? Yeah, I I dream. I I am excited to to keep going in my PhD right now. It's been really rewarding and I really enjoy my lab and my lab mates and my supervisor. It has been absolutely amazing. I think in the future I want to do um, a few postdocs um, just to kind of broaden my my research background, probably maybe stepping away from hibernation a little bit and more into kind of the biochemistry of reactive oxygen species and kind of tilting more in that direction. So I, I want to be able to do that. And I also want to, you know, see the world and experience research from other perspectives and learn from other people. So I think it would be really great to be able to snag a postdoc in a different country and be able to, you know, just like learn lived experiences from a different perspective. Uh, I think that's uh, <laughs> a very nice dream. Like we all have uh, like, uh going around the world with our research and with that I would like to ask you how does a typical day on your research look like are you able to actually travel a lot studying hibernation or is it more like lab work oh boy I have I have stories of our lab work because as much as we love to travel for um, conferences and so forth. And I've had wonderful opportunities to go beautiful places. And I think there will be more. We spend a lot of time in the lab, sometimes more than I want to, because our hibernators in these IBE bouts when they arouse, they're not following my sleep schedule whatsoever. So I'm going in, we're going in at like, like 1am, 2am working for like eight hours in the middle of the night. Just like we are a slave to the squirrels just for like those few months of winter. So that's what my life looks like is just kind of chaos in the beginning of, you know, the second winter semester. So probably don't talk to me then. The rest of the time, some nice lab work at our own space, making sure we're really productive, getting everything done, writing up. We are just about out of time. So thank you so much, Bryn, for coming on the show. If people want to learn more about your research and what you do, do you have a social media about your, your work that you'd like to share? I do. I just started a science Twitter recently and I am at Bryn Duffy. Sounds great. Thank you so much. This has been GradCast, the official radio show and podcast of the Society of Graduate Students at Western University. I've been your host, Emily Hutchinson, and my co-host was Laura Munoz-Bina. We've been speaking with Bryn Duffy and this episode was also produced by Laura. If you would like to be involved with the show or get in contact with us, you can email us at gradcastradio at gmail.com. Follow us on Instagram, Facebook, or Twitter at, at gradcastradio. You can also listen to us on Radio Western on 94.9 FM and find all of our podcasts wherever you like to find your podcasts. Thank you so much for listening and have a great night. <laughs>